the pursuit of Jesus, hope, hope, and giving everything to God is the most thrilling life on the planet. Two days ago, my wife and I were again in Washington, D.C. I imagine it was like 30 years in a row now or something like that. Uh, each May for our national, national Day of Prayer, we were in the White House in 1988. That's 25 years ago when uh, President Reagan signed into law uh, that the first Thursday of every May would be America's National Day of Prayer. And so this year was a celebration of those 25 years. And I, only, I mention that because two days ago, there were, uh, we estimate at least 42,000 prayer gatherings across America. Uh, the largest, probably 25,000, maybe 30,000. And uh, then numbers of smaller ones, including um, over every state capital, prayer in the air, where airplanes flew around the state capitals with prayer warriors in them. There was um, hot air balloons, uh, hot air prayer, uh, which uh, was appropriate when you think of politics these days. But anyway, it's uh, politics <laughs> comes from the two words poly, meaning many, and ticks, blood-sucking insects. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. I'm spo supposed to pray for all that are in authority, and that's true. Uh, I, I want to share something um, uh, this morning that uh, I, I share relatively rarely and uh, of course we've handed out the uh, a little worksheet to go with it so you know there's various styles and ways people communicate often we, we do so just by exhortation and, and uh, very often that can deeply inspire us and we go away and we usually just remember something of that uh, moment, perhaps. In some occasions, it's really a defining moment because the Holy Spirit comes in just a remarkable way. I was thinking even as we worship that what I'm about to share, on the one hand, would be a, a very strong affirmation of what we just did for the last hour or so. Uh, <clears throat> but I think it's more than that uh, in uh, what the Lord is saying to us regarding our future ministries. Uh, you know, when I realize that we're, we're seeing literally hundreds of thousands of people respond to the gospel every month, uh, and then uh, in every home for Christ, and then I look back at 48 years ago and being a youth leader and going into the furnace room of the first church that we were in and spending sometimes four and five hours praying for, for the lost and then suddenly praying for the nations and then praying for hundreds to be saved and then thousands to be saved and then millions to be saved and, and uh, wondering if, if I was asking for too much. And then the years pass and you start seeing these things happen and that you didn't do it yourself, but you're allowed to be involved in it. And it's an extraordinary thing. And, and as we handed out this uh, handout, I, you can tell the title and it's... Um, comes up on the screen there is make room for my glory and it almost seems I'm being presumptuous to come into a setting and uh, say this is the key to who you are and what God wants to do through you uh, and and I just in putting this together put the key to the desperation movement and I was thinking very even the last couple of moments about what a movement is and the fact that you come and represent many different places where you will go to. And, uh, and, and I actually, while I was just sitting there, I looked up on my phone, you know, the, uh, the, the word, the suffix ment, M-E-N-T, you know, like government, movement. And uh, the, the, the suffix ment means action or process or the result of an action or process. Uh, the third definition is means, instrument, or agent of an action, a action or process. And, of course, movement means something's moving. How many want to be a part of something that's moving? <laughs> and what God is doing in us and wants to do in us is rather remarkable. Uh, what I want to share, most of what I would share in these next moments 
is in the form of an experience. I would call it maybe a case study, or some might just call it an illustration. Some might call it a personal story. But to lead into that, I need to mention to you that uh, in about February this year, we, we uh, passed <clears throat> the 48th year of ministry that DNI have been involved in. And over these years, <clears throat> because so much of it began and is sustained in prayer and has been, uh, that we have seen some unusual things happen at different times. And I probably could count on the fingers of one hand, I'm sure, three or four of the most significant moves of God's presence that to me would come as close as you might get in our human experience on earth of, defi- of, of, of the definition, the manifest presence of God. And I'm going to share one of those. Uh, it, it could be number one, it could be number two <laughs> of all these very, very unusual experiences. And I was reflecting in my own mind as I was praying about this that every one of these happened in my life because of the response of obedience to the Lord to do something <clears throat> when he spoke to my heart to do it. <laughs> Interestingly, in all the cases of the manifest presence, the incredible presence of God coming, what he asked me to do was, at the time, nearly frightening uh, and very, very risky. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes before something happens and God speaks to you, you get scared. I get scared nowadays looking back at it. You know, I look back and say, oh, man. That was, uh, uh, God, please. Don't do that again. Well, yeah, but do it again, but do it a different way. Uh, don't scare me first like that. And, uh, but I'm going to share that in a few minutes, but first I wanted to give you a little bit of a teaching. Uh, and so it would be foundational to going back and describing this experience that happened with uh, the, the age of most of you that are in this room. It happened just to be a gathering a little larger. There were about 5,000 there. And they were all young people and all college students. But I want to go to a passage of Scripture. And I, just to digress a moment, uh, not far from here is our headquarters, the Jericho Center, where we're also building 24-7 worship and prayer. And uh, some of you may be familiar. If you haven't had a chance to visit it sometime, I hope you can. And uh, we have a, a part of the Jericho Center is the Watchman Training Center where we have different aspects of training and conferences and meetings. And, and then we have the various prayer rooms, including uh, when God spoke to my heart, uh, a story that I tell in the very last chapter of our book with a rather unusual title, The Purple Pig and Other Miracles, uh, the, uh, of how God gave me a vision. Actually, I was on top of uh, a hotel uh, in Hong Kong, praying out late at night over Victoria Harbor and all the lights. It's an incredible place, a sight that's beyond what you can imagine if you've never been in that setting. And as I began to pray, God told me to prophesy and speak prophetically, actually to the signs, uh, uh, releasing the wealth of Hong Kong to the nations. And, and while I was doing that, the Lord spoke to me and said, you're a watchman. Now on the walls, Isaiah 62, where it says, I've set watchmen on your walls who will pray day and night and they won't stop. And that's when God really birthed in my heart a vision to come back home. And in some space we had underneath the building at the time uh, that was empty, just dirt. It was uh, a place we could finish out with with, with, uh, offices or anything in the future. And the Lord showed me this wall of prayer. And so we imported, we ultimately imported 50 ton of Jerusalem stone from Israel and built an actual wall. And some of you have been in that. Um, and uh, with various prayer grottos where people can come and pray and with touchscreen televisions and to connect people to all the nations of the world. And in fact, if you go in and you just sit there uh, without changing the screens, you over the next hour, hour and 15 minutes, every nation on earth will come up with the populations and scenes from those nations for prayer. 
And I, I, I mention that because the, and the, the, the prayer grottos, we call them, are, are um, named after the tribes of Israel. And uh, last year, because people sign in to go in the prayer grottos, there were over 15,000 hours of time spent in those prayer grottos last year. And that, that, those, that number is even increasing. And so that's why God's doing the things he's doing. And I, and I really believe that it's extraordinary. Now, I mention that because, of course, it was quite a sum of money to build all that. And, and uh, uh, David knows this because he's on our board that uh, uh, we, over the years, have been paying off that building every month. You know how you pay a monthly payment for 30 years. And most of what you pay is interest. And, and then, this is not a part of my message, so I've got to make this quick, but through a chain of events that were really wonderful and extraordinary, we uh, just about a month ago paid off the building entirely, millions and millions of dollars, uh, and most of it came over the last 24 months. <laughs> and it's been a miracle. But Now, it has to do with what I'm about to share, because it is. this is a beautiful place, and our facility is a beautiful place. If you could be there and see the wall, you, 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 would, you would agree. <clears throat> but I was reading, and this happened actually before I ever had the vision for what we call the Jericho Center, and, and actually before I ever became the international president of Every Home for Christ, which was also 25 years ago. Uh, as I developed, now this would go back over four decades ago, uh, the habit of reading through my Bible in prayer each year, a number of chapters a day. It's probably one of the, it's one of the most defining habits or defining moments <laughs> When I made that decision, and if you haven't made that decision, I challenge you to do that uh, on an annual basis. And uh, I came one day to this passage in Second Chronicles of the dedication of the temple and uh, Solomon's temple, but a vision that actually first came, as you know, probably are aware, came to David in detail. In fact, David at one point says... God made me to understand in writing on my heart uh, all the details of, uh, of the temple. And my similar experience was that in a vision out in California before we ever moved here, God spoke into my heart in detail to where I actually sketched out what I, what I saw uh, in <clears throat> the key elements of what are, what's there now at, at the Jericho Center. Uh, but I, I tell you that because until something very specific happens in a building, it's just an ordinary building. And Second Chronicles chapter 5, and, and, and I just came on this passage one day and I'm just reading it. And all of a sudden I began to realize something. It says, when all the work, say the word work, we're, we're always involved in work. And, and, you know, and sometimes we work so hard, we, our time to be alone with the Lord diminishes. When, when all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord, say temple of the Lord, was finished. Say the word finished. He brought in the things. Now, say the word things. It takes a lot of things. There's, you know, instruments up here. There's lights and all, all kinds of things here. He brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings. Say that. Furnishings. And he placed them in the treasuries. Say that, treasuries. That was worth a lot of money. You'll see that in just a second. Treasuries of God's temple. Well, when I was reading my Bible, uh, this was years ago, the Bible I had was a study Bible that had commentary running alongside and below the various passages of Scripture. And... And so I saw this note that had to do with the value of what was in the temple. And I'm going to cover this very quickly because it's actually in your notes. But the facts about Solomon's temple. So just bear with me a moment to describe to you uh, the value of this. And what the note said was that in, in 1925, the Illinois Society of Architects decided to to add up everything that's actually literally described in Scripture to see what it would cost at that time to build the Temple of Solomon. That's 19, in, in 1925. And they came to the conclusion 
that it would cost about $87 billion to build Solomon's Temple in, in, in 1925. Very quickly, according to Val Partis, the talents of gold, silver, and brass in construction were worth uh, $34 billion, $399 million. The worth of the jewelry, the jewels, was generally placed at a figure usually as high. The vessels of gold, according to the historian Josephus, would be valued at 140,000 talents, and when reduced to coinage in 1925, according to Chapel's reduction tables, the total would be $1,876,000,000. Here's some more facts. The vessels of silver, according to the same authority, would cost even more, about $3,250,000,000. The priest's vestments, again in 1925, would be worth $10,000,000,000. It's some choir robes there. Ten million dollars. The trumpets. I'm a trumpeter, so I, I thought, man, uh, the trumpets alone were worth a million dollars in 1925. Then some additional facts. It had to be built, of course. It took like seven years and six months. So you had to add the workforce, 10,000 men hewing down the trees, 70,000 carrying burdens, 80,000 cutting stone. 3,850 overseers or managers for a total of 163,850 laborers working seven years and six months. And in 1925, that would have cost $344 million just to feed them. And then finally, these are the concluding facts, and you'll see why I'm sharing this. The materials other than gold and silver and jewels were valued at 12 billion, seven, almost 13 billion U.S. dollars, and in your handout I gave you, I noticed there's a mistake here. The total value today would be 12 times the value in 1925 of 87. And I, this is my mistake because I usually build these PowerPoints myself. I put in million, it should be billion. So you've got to put a B on that. $87 billion or today, because it would be 12 times that value, it would be over $1 trillion to duplicate that today. And in case you don't know what a trillion is, a trillion dollars is equal to one million million. Well, you all look like a deer caught in headlights, you know. Or it would take one million people, each with one million dollars, one million millionaires. <laughs> that's, that's America's debt every three hours, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but it's a lot of money to build that temple. And that's why I say the temple was extraordinary, unbelievable, but something was missing. And I remember reading this passage, and before I tell you this story, I want to share four defining, and I'm calling them, I choose to call them here, desperation moments. Four things that happened and I call them defining moments, and then I'm going to share with you my own personal defining moment and pray that the Holy Spirit will deposit something in our hearts of a passionate hunger for the presence of God and His glory. Uh, so first of all, the first defining moment, and I'm going to give these quickly. First defining moment, the ark of God's presence is brought in. See, up till now, it was just an, a lavish, beyond anything we could even comprehend, a building. But then it says in 2 Chronicles 5 verse 7, the priests then, see this is after that verse I read, the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. In other words, God's presence begins to come in like we, we sang about him waiting for him to walk into the room. The second defining moment I'm just touching on these. You can fill in those missing words quickly. The priests are sanctified before God. Second Chronicles 5.11, the priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. There's something to be said about moving into a place of holiness in our walk with the Lord. And I try to pray every single day. Sometimes I sing it from Psalm 51. That's what I did this morning earlier. Create in me a clean heart. 
Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What a wonderful prayer to add to your prayers every day and dwell for a moment on each of those. Create in me a clean heart really is saying, Lord, now reveal to me in these quiet moments anything that I might have been thinking, doing any action that would be contrary to you responding and making that happen. The priests are sanctified before God. Then the third defining moment, the worshipers are united in praise. That's what we were doing in the last few moments. Second Chronicles 5.13, the trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. And here's intercessory worship, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Now, this is all moving toward this final <laughs> defining moment. And that is that, number four, the temple is filled. The temple is filled with the cloud of God's glory. The temple is filled with the cloud of God's glory. Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. What they had done is they had made room for his glory. They had made room for his glory. And here's an observation, a strong observation. Mark it down. Memorize it even. God's glory, when it comes, will push everything else out of its way. God's glory, say that with me. God's glory, when it comes, will push everything else out of its way. And I suppose I could change the word it there to he. God's glory when he comes, because he's the one. He comes with his glory. We'll push everything else out of the way. So I have a, a question, because it's going to surface in just a moment with the story I'm about to tell. As God raised up the desperation movement, I'm, I'm referring to you as a movement, to be an apostolic movement, to serve the emerging generation in the last days. And how far will this movement go? And we know there's other movements that God is raising up amongst the young people of, of this generation. But what does it mean to be apostolic? I'm going to share a, 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 an experience with you in a few minutes. And it comes from the early 1980s in my, my, in my walk with the Lord. And there was a season when everyone was talking about being apostolic. Now, they, they still are. And what does apostolic mean? Apostolic means in the manner and method of the apostles. That's what apostolic means. It means to be like they were. And so here, something that I could have shared at the very end, but I'm choosing to interject it here. It's an apostolic principle for the desperation movement. And, and, and incidentally, when I was looking at this, I thought, you know, I probably grammatically, in a sense, misspelled principle uh, because, you know, principle can be spelled two different ways. A principle with a P-L-E, which is a basic truth or an assumption, and this is a basic truth. And I was about to correct that, uh, and then I looked up the word principle as it's spelled here, and, and it means that th this word principle as a noun means the first, the highest, the foremost in importance, rank, worth, or degree. Uh, Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. And with all thy getting, get understanding. So you really could use either one of these words. Uh, but I am speaking of this as really a, a, a primary foundational truth as well as something of priority. And so I'm going to give you a minute to write, write in these words because no ministry the Lord showed me clearly. As a, by the way, as a result of the experience I'm about to describe, no ministry or movement is ever truly apostolic until its leadership first gives itself continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Cannot be otherwise, because that was in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. That The very first administrative decision the apostles made that's recorded after the day of Pentecost. They made one administrative decision before the day of Pentecost when they appointed someone to replace Judas, and they just threw dice for that, you know, cast lots. 
And the guy that they appointed is never mentioned again. I don't know. But anyway. Uh, but after the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the first administrative decision that you actually see is when revival is moving, the, the Spirit is moving. The verse right before Acts chapter 6, the last verse of Acts chapter 5 says, daily in the temple courts and to every house, they never stopped proclaiming that Jesus was the Lord. And then there was this extraordinary harvest they couldn't keep up with. And the apostles said, you know, we, we, we can't do all this. We've got to have help. And so they appointed deacons, and you know that story. And then they made this apostolic declaration. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry. There's ministry. And that ministry may involve work, but it's the focus of what God's called you to in the context of his word. And so this is what he's calling us to do. Robert Murray McChain lived a number, several generations ago, and he made the statement, no amount of activity in the king's service will ever make up for the neglect of the king himself. No amount of activity in the king's service will ever make up for the neglect of the king himself. And so I, I come to this point of uh, sharing with you this personal story. Now, my goodness, I, I wish I could tell you this was a short story. I, I, this is one of my war and peace stories. Some of you may not know War and Peace. That was written by Tolstoy. In 1869, and the first draft had 1,225 pages. This is one of those stories, so everybody take a deep breath. (laughs) It's not going to be that long, but I can't really tell it and how it happened without giving you enough details to know the significance of this experience. And this happened in the early 1980s, and I was invited to go to a conference of 5,000 young people in Fort Worth, Texas, that came from practically every major university in America, in a part of a movement then that was having profound impact on the college campuses. And the leader had heard about our prayer ministry through another source and decided they needed to mobilize prayer as never before on the college campuses. In fact, they kind of had the vision that many are even having today of, of uh, continuous prayer and worship and, and then, of course, evangelism resulting out of that and discipleship. And uh, so I was invited to share. Given a very specific assignment to have three plenary sessions starting off each of the mornings that would include very tangible ways to mobilize prayer on the college campuses. And so I prepared. I, I prepared handouts just like you were given here. There were three of them. Uh, we, we, uh, we chose to give all three of them out at the, at the first session uh, so as to encourage them to be a part of everything that was being shared. In fact, I, I, I emphasized in the first two sessions very, very strongly that, we, that, that each of the first two lessons were introductory to the third, and that would by far be the most important. And I was just speaking my heart, saying, <clears throat> look, pay attention, because I, I want, I'm building a case and then sharing the practical elements. So, uh, and then they asked me if before, on the afternoons, before each of the next day plenary sessions, if in the headquarters hotel there, I would, in a ballroom, hold a prayer meeting Now, it was all that were registered. It was kind of mandatory they'd be in the morning sessions. But the afternoon sessions, it was all optional. They had different things going. And so the first afternoon, we had about 40, 50 people, as I recall. (laughs) Typical, isn't it? Out of 5,000 that came for prayer. Then I shared the very first morning. And, of course, somehow that got the attention of more than that. And I think there was probably about 150 and, uh, as we, and, and we prayed, and I, I shared then the next morning, which was the second morning, and built even a stronger case for what I was going to be sharing the third morning. And then something happened. That afternoon, before the third morning, uh, there was a larger group, but still, I don't think more than 300, <clears throat> that came into that 
ballroom, and it kind of filled the ballroom. And as we got on our knees and began to pray, I was just so moved of the Holy Spirit to just get on my face and pray. Now I had my old great big King James Version Bible, not this pathetic little thing here. Uh, <laughs> not really, but uh, when I lay on my face, it's just always been a habit of mine to put my Bible down and put my face into the pages of the Bible. That's, that's, it, it, I don't know, it's just a habit. Open it up random. <clears throat> so I laid, I just, and I didn't say to the, to the room anything like, uh, I'm going to get on my face now, and if any else, anybody else was, wants to do that, just feel free to do that. I just, I just got on my face and quietly began to weep, just began to weep for God's presence. And this went on for over an hour to an hour and a half because I could hear, I could hear people praying, I could hear people weeping. I, there's just a, a sound, you know, in that kind of, a, that kind of an atmosphere. And then when I suddenly, and here I am laying on my face, but I looked at my watch, you know, and to see, you know, what the time was, and I thought, oh, you know, I've got to bring this to a close. And when I stood up, I looked across the room, and absolutely everyone, everyone was on their face, except one guy, and he weighed about 300 pounds. And I'd never seen this before. There was a, a chair just like this, and he was laying over it with his legs hanging down that way and his head hanging down that way. And I just thought that was interesting. He was weeping too, but it was just strange. Just <laughs> this big, like a whale, you know, <laughs> on a chair. And the Lord, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I'm, I'm going to do that tomorrow. I said, do what? This, I'm going to turn this convention center into a womb, W-O-M-B, a womb of my glory. Oh, how? And he didn't answer. And, and nothing, I, 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 first of all, I couldn't imagine it. I, I could not imagine what I saw there happening there. And I didn't think much of it other than praying that God would really guide me in what I shared the next day because I felt it was so important. And so that night we retired and I went, as I lay down beside my wife, my wife, she falls right asleep. I mean, it's like a, a 500-pound stone. Well, she doesn't weigh that much, but, <laughs> you know, falling into a creek, you know, and she's gone. I mean, it's no counting sheep. It's just gone. And I'm laying there trying to sleep, and I can't sleep. I, I tried everything. I counted sheep. I counted blessings. I quoted scripture about sleep. You know, I will give my beloved sleep and nothing happened. And I'm just laying there. It's past midnight now. It's probably nearing 1 a.m. I don't know what time it was. And I am really saying, God, I've got to sleep. I've got to sleep. And then I heard him speak. The first time that in the middle of that night, in the middle of the night, and he said, make room for my glory. And I knew he was talking. I said, Lord, well, first I said, kind of like Samuel, Lord, is that you? And then again, make room for my glory. And, and I discerned, he, he's talking to me. Make, and so I said, how, Lord, how? And do you know he didn't say how then? He said, again, make room for my glory. I counted about 10 times that I recall over a period of the next half hour, 40 minutes, I don't know how long, when I said, how, Lord, he, he just said again, make room for my glory. And after about the 10th time, I said, okay, Lord, I don't know what you mean. This was part of the risk. But I will, I will do it. That's just, now, that's strange when you say, it's like the Lord saying, I want you to do something. Okay, Lord, what? Well, I'm not going to tell you until you say you're willing to do it. <laughs> so, it's different. It's different. And so 
I, I, I said, Lord, I'll do it. And then he asked me a question. The next thing was a question. Have you ever heard greater Bible teaching in your life? And you know, I felt so inadequate of the other speakers that were invited. They were TV personalities. They were Bible expositors. In fact, I was so thankful, one in particular, that I, I went before him because I, I didn't want to speak after him. Because people would say, how could they invite someone so dumb? You know, because you, they would be comparing you. And, uh, you know, you, you, you just feel insecure. And I said, Lord, honestly, and I, and I even cited a couple messages. I said, that message this morning on the joy of the Lord has got to be the greatest message I've ever heard in my life on the joy of the Lord. And that other one on intercession was so beyond. I, 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 I just want to, it's like I want to get up tomorrow and just play the tape of that guy from yesterday. And, and then the Lord said, have you ever seen more exuberance in the dancing and the singing? Oh, no, Lord. I, it, 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 you know, they, they, they'd have a speaker, and then they'd have like five minutes of dancing, choreography, waving banners, and, you know, and, and then wham, they would go into the next session. And then, and then they would, you know, after about one hour, they'd have three minutes. I mean, it was all timed out. Everything was timed out perfectly. And, and you know, just right to the minute. And I think they even had the, 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 the timing sheets, you know. And we would get up and we would have like 55 minutes. And, and so, you know, so the Lord said, have you ever seen more, more exuberance in, oh, Lord, they, they, they're so alive in, in, in the way they dance and the way they sing. And then the Lord said, there's only one problem. No one has made room for my glory. And then it was like, almost like he was pleading. And, I, and, you know, why should God have to do this? He said, will you make room for my glory? And when I said next, how, Lord? He said, when you get into the lectern or the pulpit tomorrow morning, will you just do nothing? Nothing. But wait for my glory. Just do nothing. And I said, Lord, I, what do you mean Nothing. Would you just do nothing? I said, Lord, I, 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 I can't do nothing. I've never done nothing before. I always do something. How can you do nothing? Just, you, would, you just, would you just stand there? Would you lay aside all your plans? And then I said something really dumb. I said, Lord, are you aware that we've handed out the sheets with all the empty places, the things, there's to write this and how to do this and how to do that. And, 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 and the Lord said, I'm very aware. <laughs> but would you just do nothing? Would you just let me come? Well, I never slept that night. I never slept at all. I couldn't because I didn't know how to do nothing. And so the next morning, I was up, had a shower, and I was sitting on a couch, a little couch right by the entry of our room, and so when my wife finally got up, she, she saw me sitting there all dressed. And her first reaction, she, she knows me and she could see. She came over and sat beside me and said, honey, what's wrong? At first I could already talk and I said, well, God's asked me to do something this morning that I've never done and I'm, I'm scared. Well, then she got scared because she knows me. So she's... She has this look in her eyes, and she says, what did God ask you to do? I said, nothing. <laughs> and she said, well, what do you mean, nothing? I said, that's what he's asked me to do, nothing. And she said, how can you do nothing? <laughs> and I said, you see? You see? I don't know. I've never done nothing before. She said, you just can't do nothing. I said, all I know is, he said, lay aside everything I'd planned. And I didn't even know what he was going to tell me to do, if anything. And then I said, honey, you know me. Better than anyone on earth, would would you pray for me? Well, she took my hands. And this is funny. She, She started to say, I could see her lips, and they started to move to say, oh, God. And then she just started sobbing. And then, and I waited, and then she started again, oh, God, and then she started sobbing. Well, this happened about five times or whatever, and it goes on for about six, seven minutes, 
And I figured if there's going to be any prayer done, I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> but as she was, but seriously, this is true. As she was weeping toward the end before I prayed, the reason I, I prayed was because the Lord said to me, like, you can pray now. I've heard all her tears. And later I read somewhere, Charles Spurgeon said, tears are liquid prayer. Tears are liquid prayer. Well, then we get into the auditorium. And, and by, by, right, right about now I'm numb. I, I really am numb. I, you know, they could have said, there goes a zombie. You know, uh, because you're, you're, you're not sure what to do. Uh, you, you've left your notes. I think it, my re- recollection is I even left my notes in, 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 in the hotel room so I couldn't fall back on them, thinking maybe I didn't really hear the Lord even though I was up all night and I heard him ten times. You know, it's... <laughs> and then this is the worst part. This is the worst part. So they're dancing around for the five minutes and waving their banners and it's all chore- choreographed. You know, they kicked at the same time. But anyway, there, there was... But it was worship. And... Sort of. And then, you know, then they, they, the leader gets up. And man, what an introduction. Oh. He gets up and says, now what Brother Dick is going to share is the most important lesson you're ever going to hear in your life. You got your worksheets? Everybody hold them up. Hold them up. Yeah. Anybody missing any? You left them? Uh, ushers? Get, get. Now, listen, you, 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 and I'm sitting there, oh, God. Oh. And I walked <laughs> I walked up and I think for the first couple of minutes they thought uh, he forgot his message <laughs> or something. And I just stood there. And I said, Lord, oh God, now what? And without any explanation he said and this was the, when he released me to actually do something out of nothing he, he said have everybody opened Isaiah chapter 6 get on their knees face forward and audibly out loud but not in unison each one individually pray the first eight verses one verse at a time I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And he he said, just do that. That's all. Nothing else. That's all. So I stood there. They got their Bibles open, and suddenly they started praying. I'm standing looking out at them. And pretty soon, weeping started over the... And I'm I'm watching this. This It's over maybe three, three, five minutes. Weeping. And then I saw way up in, like, the balcony, someone get out. And right in the aisle, get down on their face. And then I saw another one over here. And then another one. And then another. Within the next five to seven minutes, absolutely every person in the place was either under their chairs, in the aisles, somewhere, on their face in the most extraordinary way of brokenness and travail and birthing. And when the passage was quoted from Isaiah chapter 64, oh God, rend the heavens and come down. And where it it goes on to say, but there's no one to lay hold of of God. Literally, that's what was happening. They They were travailing. That's a travail passage. They were they were just laying hold of God. And I, did, I, and I really did do nothing. Uh, it, it, it just, it was incredible uh, to look out over this place and literally what I had seen the day before was happening before my very eyes. And I, I looked at my watch because I, I, I lost sense of time. Remember now, there, were, there was a schedule of five or so other speakers each for an hour after me. And I knew that I, I had to end. And I, I looked at my watch, and the hour was up. And I thought, you know, I have to step back now and turn this back over to the leader. 
So I turned to find the leader, and I couldn't find him until I discovered he was under the piano, <laughs> on his face, just sobbing. And all I could do then was get on my face too. When the glory of the Lord comes, it pushes everything out. Uh, for a while, I was sick. Now I was sick of the fact that I was going to get blamed for wiping out the whole, you know, just because you, you know, yeah, it might have been the Lord, but you caused it, you know. <clears throat> if you hadn't done that, nothing stuff, you know. <laughs> but a brokenness prevailed in that place as the presence of God came in the most extraordinary way. And what prompted me to even tell the story was two, two weeks ago or three weeks ago at Every Home for Christ, we had the global alliance of church multipliers come together. Their, their goal, by the way, by 2020 is to plant five million new churches around the world. And they're well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a God-sized goal but God's a big God. And uh, the leader of that movement happened to be there because he's a church planter too. They're planting churches on college campuses everywhere all over the world. And uh, I didn't know this. He was one of the speakers, and he told this story. And that's what resurrected it in my mind that what God is saying to us in this hour is we need to make room. We need to make room in our ministries. We need to make room in our each day for God's glory and his presence to come. And as we're worshiping today, I encourage you to recognize the significance of what God may be saying. The how he does it in each of our settings may be different in our ministries. With us, we, we started having prayer retreats for the young people, taking them off for two and three days at a time. A lot, a lot of the times it was just a Friday and a Saturday. And that's one of the things we want to do at the Jericho Center in the months to come is to have some of these periodically and encourage even youth leaders to bring, especially those in the area, to bring their young people for, for these, uh, these kind of prayer encounters. And they're really God encounters. But you know, and I, I, I really conclude before we, we would go back into a time just of worship and asking the Lord what he's saying to us in this moment. Because obviously at that time, it was a sovereign something of the Lord, but it was because people were sensitive. The Lord saying, I, I, I want you more than anything else. I want you more than anything else. A.T. Pearson lived 100 years ago, and he made the statement generally, if not uniformly, prayers both starting point and goal to every movement, every movement, in which are the elements of permanent progress. Wherever the church has been aroused and the world's wickedness arrested, somebody somewhere has been praying. Somebody somewhere has been praying. I believe what we're seeing God do uh, around the world is because of this. And then finally, S.D. Gordon lived about the same time, a little bit toward the end of Pearson's life, who lived at the time of Dwight L. Moody and was a Bible teacher in the daytime of a lot of Moody's evening meetings. And S.D. Gordon said, the, the great people of the earth are the people who pray. Prayer isn't the only thing, but it is the chief thing. All spiritual victories are won beforehand in prayer. Service is merely gathering up the results of prayer. And so I want to pray for you and and ask our musicians, our worship worshipers to come again and have you stand. And I don't know exactly what this means other than it can begin with a, just a, a, a follow-up to what we did before uh, I, I came up here. To say, Lord, whatever it means... If there are times you just want me to do nothing with the young people that we have and just spend time waiting on you. And sometimes it seems like nothing happens in those moments. In fact, I've had some, some of the most greatest uh, move, moves of the Spirit in, in a general sense. I'm not talking like the one I just described to you, which was, was, was quite unique, but come after we've waited 
and it doesn't seem like anything was happening. And then all of a sudden we determined, you know, Lord, I'm going to stay here until something does happen. <laughs> and that's why I think God would, was blessing the prayer retreats that we had. And if I have the occasion to share with you again, I was talking to David about maybe uh, coming out to, to uh, Trinidad when you're out there. And uh, I would, at the right occasion, like to share a little more of some of the things we did in the prayer retreats and how the Lord began to lead. Because, and I know just before this time today, I was sharing with David that, that I've started to learn that prayers seem to be accumulative. They accumulate. And so here I am standing in May of 2013 and still feeling the impact of the prayers of the young people when we would go out into the mountains and just pray. And I remember how the first time we went in, in the middle of the night, one of our young people, again on her face, 16, 17 years old, her name was Carolyn, just sobbing and to the point that I knelt behind her, wondered if she was all right because of the way she was just writhing and weeping. And then I heard her prayers for God to save the young people in dr on drugs in California in Haight-Ashbury there and not far from us we were in Sacramento and it was the hippie movement then she was pleading for revival it was not an ordinary prayer and do you know within six months the Jesus movement broke out in California to where within a matter of a couple of months they were baptizing 3,000 young people in the Pacific Ocean on weekends and I looked back to Carolyn and I thought, I think she gave birth. She was one of those that gave birth. Just made herself available. And here I am in 2013. <laughs> I think we're still living out the answers to those prayers. And now there's another generation rising up that's going to lay hold of God and see even more. And I want you to stand. Let's stand together.